Hey, everybody. Are you with me when I say life can be amazing at times, but it can also be extremely challenging? I know. I've been there myself. Learned some valuable life lessons along the way, and now I'm here to help you. It's no coincidence you found your way to the Relevate podcast. I'm your host, Rena Olson, a self-proclaimed inspirer of others. Together, we're going to dive deep into raw and honest conversations with real people. My hope is that through these stories, you too will be inspired and ready to tackle whatever's holding you back or breaking your heart. Then you'll be free to live a life of purpose and true fulfillment. I promise it's possible. Let's Relevate. I don't want bandages, I want solutions, and I really think that economic development is the key to that. Hey friends, welcome to this episode of the Relevate Podcast. I love to spotlight people who are truly making a difference in the world. In this episode, you'll meet Megan Kitt, a social entrepreneur and founder of Thule. Her company designs and sells beautiful jewelry made by artisans in Uganda and Kenya. People will ask me sometimes how I got Thule to be where it is today, and I think half of it is that I just didn't, I didn't quit. I'll let Megan tell you more. Megan Kitt, welcome to the Relevate podcast. Creating sustainable jobs. Um, so we work out in Uganda and Kenya, and that's kind of what I do. Um, my background is I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, but I currently live in Japan. So it's been kind of a wild ride. Mm. Growing a company, moving around a lot, and doing some travel as I do it. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. In a previous conversation, kind of the one word that I got about you is you're just kind of scrappy and tenacious and find a way to make things happen. So that started in college, right? When you needed to find a way to pay for those student loans. Let's talk about how you kind of found your career path. Right. Well, thank you for saying that. First of all, I consider that high praise. And um, it's true. I mean, that's kind of how I got started on this journey that now years later has me running Thule. Um, because as you know, college is not cheap in the US. And so I had this dream of becoming a journalist. I really wanted to tell stories to create positive impact in the world. I've always loved writing. So it kind of seemed like a great um, fit for me. But of course, I had to pay for that. So at a young, so at a young age, that was kind of resonating in your heart that you really wanted a job with purpose. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been interested in global development for a long time and East Africa specifically for probably as long as I can remember. And I think a lot of it was the music and the books that I was reading, to be honest, kind of just put me on this track um, to having that interest. And I was trying to think about how I could you know, do some good in the world. And I just really realized that I am a very good communicator and really enjoy writing. And I just noticed from different, you know, articles or documentaries or stories that people were telling. I mean, that's the way that you can motivate a lot of people to make a change. Um, You know, me on my own, I might not be able to do that much, but if I could tell a story about something happening halfway around the world that people don't know about, that could get people to care and want to make change. And so that was kind of how I came up with my first career goal. I'm not currently working as a journalist right now. I miss it, but I'm happy with what I'm doing now. And so I kind of took a bit of a 180 um, just to pay for college. I was working at a newspaper in Seattle and then I started modeling um, just because it paid well, to be honest. And I needed money for tuition. And so that's 
how I did that. And it ended up giving me the fashion experience that I needed years later to start Thule. That is so cool how God uses all those experiences in our lives. And it's our life is composed of chapters, right? Right. So I think a lot of times when people start doing one thing, they're like, wow, I'm going to, you know, this is kind of my career path. And that's not necessarily so. Yeah, it's, it's very true. I mean, journalism ended up being what brought me to Thule too, but then even modeling, I just thought this was like a, you know, like it was thought it was just a job. You know, I was a teenager when I started and mm-hmm. it wasn't something that I was particularly interested in or even necessarily super proud of because the fashion industry has its challenges. I mean, of course, there's the part of me who like, you know, lots of people like being, being and modeling and, and doing that, that has its flattering aspects. I'm not going to pretend that's not true, but it was something I always felt a little bit uncomfortable about being a part of that industry. And now years forward, something that I did purely because I needed a way to pay for college ended up having such an, such insight into what I ended up doing with Thule. And similarly, I mean, I had this drive to be a journalist and I still love writing and I still use that skill with Mm -hmm. Thule, but I never would have made it to Uganda if I hadn't been a a reporter. About that story, how you ended up in Uganda. Fast forward, I graduated college and started applying for journalism jobs all over the place. I was offered a few of them and picked the one I liked best and ended up in Florida. And it's a really small little beach town writing as a news reporter, among other things, because it was a small paper. So I had several beats and it was kind of an interesting time in my life because journalism is a very competitive industry. The whole time I was chasing my journalism degree, I kept hearing how, well, you can always go to law school. (laughs) It was kind of like, I did it. I worked really hard in college with all of these internships to get that job. Got it, moved to Florida and found myself not feeling completely fulfilled, to be honest. I really liked the work that I was doing day to day because it was very research-based, very talking to people-based. And in a lot of ways, I was able to make some changes with my stories, but in some ways I started to feel that I was writing about what people were doing instead of doing something myself. And meanwhile, I mean, so I did still have some student loans. And so I decided to take a year to just model full-time because you can make more money to get my loans paid off. And I was taking freelance jobs while I was doing that. And one of those jobs was in Uganda to write about mental health in East Africa, which is something that very obviously there are very pressing physical needs in developing countries. So something that's often overlooked is the mental health aspect of things. And so I went to Uganda for about a month to write about that. And then a couple other stories that I found along the way. And then while I was there, I started Thule. So everything just came full circle. Okay. Well, that's, that's very cool. So let's talk about Thule and kind of your genesis on you saw these women there that were, that were creating these beautiful jewelry out of paper beads. Is that right? Yeah. So I was walking around in Kampala, but I was walking around in Uganda and um, met all of these women who were so desperate to work. Uganda, as a developing country, has a very high unemployment rate, especially for women. And so what these women would do is go to the local trash dumps and just salvage paper, cardboard or whatever they could find and roll it into these paper beads and then cover it in this varnish that made it like waterproof and really solid. And they'd string it into these necklaces and take them to the marketplace and try to sell whatever they could sell. Although most days they sold nothing, but they did it every single day just because 
it was really their only option. And I was very just moved by the amount of tenacity that these women had because that, that kind of work ethic when it wasn't really paying off very well for them is just very admirable, I think, and just says a lot for how they would do whatever it took for their family. Most of them were single mothers just because it's a very common thing in East Africa. And so I was just very moved by what they were doing. And I thought to myself that, you know, I had this experience in fashion and I knew about marketing just from being around these campaigns that I was in. And not only that, I had the privilege of having access to an international market where they didn't. And so I thought maybe if I could bring their craft to an international market and get some buyers for them, then it would just create a stream of income for them that they weren't getting with their craft trying to sell locally in Uganda. How long did it take you to kind of piece that together? I mean, was it was it kind of an instant thing where you connected the dots and in product being Thule? Or did that process take a little while for you to get there? You know, to be honest, it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time, just because I was working in fashion from the time I was in college. And I saw, you know, how much money goes into these brands and how much people are willing to pay for something that just has good marketing around it. Mm -hmm. And was no stranger to the fact that most of our clothing is not made under ethical circumstances. And so that had been something that I was very intrigued by just in general. And then, you know, Thule's not the first company to be selling paper beaded jewelry. So I had seen some of it before just out in the wild living my life. And I had had the thought that like, you know, this is really cool. I like what it's doing, but the problem is I would never wear this. And I don't know anybody else who would either. And so me naive never having been to East Africa I was like why don't they just make it cuter <laughs> you know and I kind of had that thought going into my time in Uganda when I got there I realized the reason that they didn't make it cuter was because it's really hard to do in East Africa you can't just go to a store and buy the supplies you need to make that sort of thing so building supply chains ended up being a challenge for us anyway all that is to say I had kind of been toying with the idea before I got there that maybe I could do something a little bit more fashion focused. And then in meeting the women and talking to them and seeing their drive, it just kind of all came together as something that I felt that even though I didn't have a business background, I didn't know that much about the fashion business, but that just felt like it was something that I could really try to take on. So what does the word Thule mean? So Thule is a word that means we are in Luganda, which is one of the many languages spoken in Uganda. Um, especially by my first three women that I started working with when I started the company. And we chose it because we wanted something that kind of talks about how, you know, the world's a really big place and there's a lot of different countries and different lifestyles and different cultures out there. But at the end of the day, we're all human and something as simple as jewelry that you may buy at a boutique store in Seattle or New York or wherever can be making this huge difference in these people's lives in East Africa. And so we wanted something that kind of encompassed that mentality of collaborative solutions. Okay, so you find this group of women and you pitch the idea of Thule with them. And then, so I think the complexity of the business model, were you surprised at how complex kind of a simple idea that you had to put women to work in Uganda, making jewelry and selling it on an international market? I mean, that sounds kind of simple, but I bet in reality, it turned out to be very complex. <laughs> yeah, you're very right about that. I mean, just from a sourcing issue, I won't get into the specifics because it's not interesting, but it was very difficult <laughs> to just be able to, to um, have 
even at a small scale, um, multiple pieces that all looked exactly the same, same color, same quality, everything. Um, quality was also a big challenge. And then it was the logistics of exporting is hard out of a developing country and really slow mail time and things like that. And then once you get the products out of the country, you have them in America and you have to brand them and you have to get distribution. And there's just so many things that, you know, if I had known how much work and how complex it was going to be back when I was walking around Kampala thinking about how I could build a fashion brand and change the world, I probably wouldn't have done it. So in that sense, it's probably good that I was so naive going in because once I started doing it, I just kind of started fixing things as I could until it got better. Well, there you go. And how old were you when you started the company? I was 23. Wow. So no business background. I mean, that that's very, very impressive that, and that goes back to you being scrappy. You know, you just, you figured it out every step along the way. And I think that's really a powerful message for people who want to be entrepreneurs because it's, you, you don't get a handbook on how to do it. It's the learning That's really where you grow as a person. And that's really what helps shape your company into what it's meant to be. I totally agree. And I think, again, this is kind of where my journalism background came into play because, I mean, I went to journalism school. I've got a master's in in it and I learned the best about how to be a writer and how to be a reporter, especially just from going out and doing it. It's one of those things that you can go to school for it and, you know, you need Mm -hmm. to, but experience is the best teacher. And I think because I was already working in an industry where that was so true, it just kind of made sense for me to just jump in. And if I had waited until I felt like I was ready, I'd probably still be reading up on business plans and be pre-launch and that wouldn't have done any good for anybody. Analysis paralysis, that that hamstrings a lot of people right there. You just overthink it. Yes, conversation, Megan, you said there is always a solution if you just keep pushing. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. So, I mean, kind of alluding to your last question, we've had a lot of things come up to land disputes where, um, you know, the government has deeded multiple lands or has issued multiple deeds to the same parcel of land in a lot of places in Uganda. It's a big problem and it wasn't intentional. It was just, it's just a, a matter of developing a developing country. It's very difficult. And so we've lost workshops based on that down to logistical problems and also just working with a remote team internationally. We've had so many times where it would have been really understandable for us to just quit. I mean, the year we just finished is another good example of that. I don't think anyone would have begrudged us for stopping in 2020. But I think if you just keep looking at different solutions, it's not always readily available. But for Tuli's specifically, I mean, we've had enough times where it just with some creative thinking and just to keep pushing through, that's really what's gotten us there. And um, people will ask me sometimes how I got Tuli to be where it is today. And I think half of it is that I just didn't, I didn't quit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, when we first launched, we're in a saturated market and, you know, fashion's a tough industry. And I mean, I'll be honest, we weren't having a ton of sales, um, which was fine because our infrastructure wasn't built up enough to, to carry that many sales anyway. Sure. And I just kept doing it. You know, I kept publishing on my Instagram and, you know, trying to get the word out and reaching out to different um, buyers at boutiques and, and such until we started getting the momentum. But 
I think it would have been pretty easy for me to see our sales for the first three or four months of operation and just give up. Yeah. Building a brand is hard work and it just, um, it takes perseverance and it takes time and, you know, it takes time to prove the concept. And the fact that you've been around for six years, you know, you get, you get smarter and better as you go along. Let's talk about the evolution of the brand. And if you can kind of uh, paint a picture on what Thule jewelry and the brand is like today. So the biggest change that we've had over our journey um, over the years is moving from strictly paper beaded jewelry, which is what we were doing at first, to now we have recycled metal jewelry. So like a little bit more minimalist. And we also use recycled horn and bone out of our Kenya workshop, which is actually pretty cool because um, our artisans buy these um, horns from the local butchers that would otherwise just be thrown into dumps. So it kind of helps to clean up the slums where our artisans were living anyway. But basically what has happened over the years is as we had more money to buy more um, machinery for our workshops, we have been able to upgrade what we were able to do. When we first started the company, really it was very simple stuff and we had to rely on you know good branding good photography and a good story to get people to tell to, to buy and now we're able to do sand casting and things like that so the product line itself has gotten a lot more elegant i would say and a lot more minimalist mm-hmm. um, the company itself has become a lot more impact driven i think working in East Africa for this much time, I've just learned so much about how little impact measurement is done in a lot of this industry. And it's not really anyone's fault. It's a really difficult thing to do. But I've realized that, you know, there's a lot of well-intended nonprofits that will go in trying to do a lot of good in the world and realize that they're not actually making the positive impact that they're having. So we've spent a lot of time trying to measure, you know, someone who comes on on board with us, are they doing better than they were, you know, months later, years later, you know, because we want to make sure that we're actually keeping the promises that we're making. Um, So that has been kind of our operational evolution. Right. And I think the key there is that long-term commitment and um, a lot of nonprofits are, you know, they go in kind of guns blazing, doing work in a developing country. Like you said, it's just, it's just really difficult and you just need to be prepared for a lot of challenges. It is. And there's so many factors that go into it, even studying the wages that we pay our team. We have to think about these microeconomies that come up in both Kenya and Uganda, where the villages, I mean, they're called villages, even if they're in like large cities it's just kind of these clusters of neighborhoods where people will go buy their food from the same little store and and it's just like these micro economies where if I started paying the artisans too much it would flood the market and drive all the prices up and then hurt all of the people who live there who don't work for me so there's like this very sweet spot of like making sure that our artisans are able to meet all of the tenants of rising out of poverty that we're trying to reach for them and make sure that they're living, you know, the type of lifestyle that they deserve to be living for their work without accidentally hurting other people. And so just even that is one example of these things that really need to be taken into account. And I think good intentions are great, but sometimes we have to just sit down and take a really scathing look at what we're doing and make sure that we're actually having the impact that we want to be having. 
Right. And just learning the, the culture and um, a lot of things that you probably would find acceptable in the U.S. might not be cool over there. <laughs> yeah, that is very true. And that's a big part of why we've set up the company to where, you know, I, I have my team in Uganda and in Kenya, and everybody who works on both teams is a local up to our production manager who's in charge of the whole facility. So I work with our production managers predominantly to place the orders and, you know, address any quality concerns we may have. But I really take their lead in as far as like what the artists need, what they need, um, how things should be done. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not Kenyan, I'm not Ugandan, and there's a lot about those cultures that I don't understand. And there's a lot about living in those countries that I don't understand because I've never even lived there, even as an expat. So I think that's been really important to keeping the operations running smoothly because I have realized when, when I visit the workshops, I definitely have a very American mindset around work. That's mm-hmm. not how people do things in East Africa. And I'm not right. That's just how I grew up. Yeah. And I think in our um, zealousness to want to think to make things better and our, you know, our American lenses, we can, we can be quite headstrong, but learning to do that cultural dance well is, and that's something that you just have to, it just takes time and it takes good people on the boots, you know, where you're working to help you figure it out. Oh, for sure. It's um, been monumental that I have people running the operations in both countries that I trust fully, because otherwise, I mean, I wouldn't be able to relinquish so much control if I couldn't trust them. And that's something that also, you know, takes time. And um, it's a difficult thing to do, especially when you're doing it remotely. But I think it's also a very important thing to do if we are going to go in as an outsider and, and try to help create positive change without, you know, enforcing our own worldviews and enforcing our own ways of doing things on a country that is not our own. Right. So if you could share with my listeners, the story of Florence, because I, I think this is such a, such a beautiful story of the impact you've had on one woman and one family. Sure. Yeah. I, it's one of my favorite stories too. So Florence was one of the very first women that we worked with, um, for Thule and, um, she helped get the company going. She was just a very, very detail oriented woman who just helped, um, helped bring the whole team up to this quality level that I am all about because that makes it easier for us to do our job. And um, she was just a very smart and hardworking person. And so she started working for Thule and um, used her money to go to college. And so in doing that, she ended up being able to get a job as a headmistress at a boarding school in Kampala. And so she ended up quitting after working for us, which of course, you know, I mean, that's sad for us because she was a great addition to our team, but it also shows that the company's model is working because now she has another job separate from Thule, you know, and we were able to fill her spot for somebody else. And that's kind of getting back to what you said about long-term impact is really what we focus the most on. I have noticed that Similar com- companies or um, nonprofits will sometimes only focus on short-term um, work through fair trade jewelry or fair trade products. And the problem with that is, you know, you may have a job temporarily and then sink back into poverty right after you don't have it anymore. So our goal is anybody who's leaving our artisan collective is doing so because 
they have something else where they don't need us anymore, um, just to break the cycle of, of any sort of dependency or poverty. And kind of along with that, it's really important to us to be able to fund educations for our artisans' children. I'm sure you're aware that in East Africa, that's not free. Education in Uganda and Kenya is quote unquote free, but there's a bunch of fees that you have to pay. And so a lot of people aren't able to put their kids in school, or if they are, it's kind of sporadic, which obviously is not a great way to get an education. And um, alongside that in Uganda, especially where the official language is English, but that's not the most frequently spoken language. If you don't learn it in school, you become kind of unemployable. And so we make sure that all of our artisans are earning enough to be able to send their kids to school all the way through university if they're able to get in. Once they finish university, they don't need to work for Thule because they can go get a job in the local economy. And to me, that's breaking the cycle of poverty because it's making it so the next generation doesn't need a company like Thule. And really, I mean, my big dream would be that nobody needed something like Thule, you know, well into the future. That is, that is a big dream. And so you're able to provide scholarships? So right now, um, we are doing, for our artisans themselves, the wages they make is enough to pay for that tuition, as well as their other living expenses and just like opening a savings account and, and that sort of thing. Um, but we also, because Thule is a social purpose corporation, which basically means we're a for-profit company that gives all of its profits away. So we take any profit that we have and put it into scholarship funds for people who don't work for our or aren't children of our artisans. And so they're just people in the communities. So we funded educations that way as well through scholarships. Yeah. Well, and I would think the, the work that these women are doing as artisans has got to be, you know, they're using their hands, they're using their creativity, they are providing revenue for the family. I mean, to me, it just sounds like really good, fulfilling work for a lot of people. I hope so. I mean, and I I do know that the first time that I went to East Africa and every time since then, I've always been really struck by how most people that I talk to, Thule related or not, um, will ask me for advice about like work or like how they can work in America or how they can do business in America. I remember really vividly talking to a man who sold fish in a local market. He was asking me like, how can I trade with America? And I was like, okay, well, that's not super practical, but you know, and, and I really admire that, you know, because, you know, walking around people know that I'm a foreigner and a lot of times people think that I'm a lot wealthier than I am. And, you know, instead of asking me for money, they're asking me for work. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just really striking that that's what people really want. And kind of getting back to our last conversation or our, the last topic about not imposing our own views, you know, it would be easy for me to just walk in and want to start like handing out money. But really what people told me when I was listening as a reporter is that they wanted work because it was long-term sustainable and then they wouldn't need the aid anymore. And that's really the goal for Thule. I'm thinking you probably have a big vision where the company will be headed in the, in the short term and long-term. What, what does that look like, Megan? Yes. Um, so right now, 
we're working with about two dozen artisans, which is great. You know, I mean, like I said, we started with three, but I want to be working with way more than that. So um, my short-term vision is to continue to grow. Um, Tuli recently came overcame some hurdles we were having with, um, we were getting these large purchase orders, but we couldn't fulfill them in time. Like, so we'd be getting an order from a retailer in the U.S. who would want 10,000 pieces. And I'd be like, okay, well, I can get you that in six months. And they'd say, no, you know, because <laughs> that's not, that's not the retail cycle here. So we finally are able to meet those kinds of orders. And so now we're able to lean into that growth. And so that's our short-term growth goal is to make sure that we are able to do that while still providing the same service and quality that we've, you know, taught our customers that we're able to provide. But long-term, I mean, I would love to see Thule as a company, as a brand that is really well-known, not just in ethical fashion, but just in mainstream fashion, where we have hundreds, if not thousands of people working for us and still earning those kinds of wages. And then my plan is, I mean, full disclosure, like 2020 was a really difficult year for us. So it was the first year that we weren't able to reinvest profits back into the community through scholarships and things like that. But eventually, I would really like to see Tuli investing into local communities in a sustainable way. So an example of that is Tuli helped to support the building of a sustainable farm in Uganda a few years back, um, which is really cool because it helps solve the problem of food availability in the village that it was built in. And then once it was built and operational, it was able to generate its own revenue. So it created local jobs and then paid for those jobs just from its operations. So something like that, that makes a long-term benefit on the community, but also isn't necessarily dependent on increased aid. You know, I don't want bandages, I want solutions. And I really think that economic development is the key to that. Yes, most definitely. So in the case of that farm that you invested in, are you still involved with the ongoing operation of that business? No, we're not involved at all. We just gave the money and we didn't pay for the whole thing. So we just helped pay for it, for it. But through some connections that I had in East Africa, I found out about this project and met the person holding it up and met with him and really believed in what he was doing. And so we just helped give them some of their seed money so that they could, you know, get the business off the ground and start operating. That's amazing. Um, so in terms of the geographic footprint of Thule, do you plan to stay focused in Kenya and Uganda, or is there a chance to further expand in East Africa? You know, right now I'm not planning on expanding anymore. I get really tempted to just because my husband and I really love to travel and we've been lucky to be able to do it. So <laughs> I've gone to all these other countries and seen similar things and been like, oh, Tuli would be, this would be a great thing for Tuli, you know, in India or the Philippines or, or wherever. But I'm trying to rein that in because it's a lot more efficient to operate in one geographic location, you know, because I can't just be flying all over the world all the time, as much as I'd love to, like, that's not being a good steward of Tuli's money. It makes more sense to start in one place and make as big an impact as you can. Then even expanding into Kenya was largely just a logistical choice. I really wanted to do our brass metal workshop out of Uganda, but the um, availability of recycled brass was just not non-existent really in Kampala. And so I started looking into importing it from nearby Kenya. I mean, you can get there to Nairobi from a bus, but like the, the, um, the import fees were just so high that it would just make it so that it was cutting too much into the salary we were paying. And so I ended up going to Kenya just 
because it made more sense logistically. Um, but I don't have plans to just go into every country necessarily. I'd rather have like a small concentrated impact. And then maybe one day when we're a fashion empire, we'll go other places. That would be great. <laughs> Love that. So along the way, you got married and you have a little girl and you are pregnant with, with baby number two. So how have you been able to manage all of that and the demands of Thule and a pandemic? I mean, that's really a lot for any one person. <laughs> Yeah, it's been rough. You know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I spend a lot of very late nights in my office. So there's that. Um, My husband's very supportive and helps out as much as he can. He's in the Navy. So he spends a lot of time at sea, um, which is also challenging. So I've just learned to be really flexible and very um, just just very mindful of my time um to the point where I feel that like someone who saw my planner would probably think that I was like the weirdest person they've ever seen because I like schedule in my time for having fun like my time for this uh, my time for talking to friends and um which you know may seem a little over the top but it's the only way to get things done especially because once you have a baby you know you can have the constant guilt of if you're not with your kids then you feel like you're missing out on being a good mom. But then if you are with them, you're worried about your business. And so I've had to create some very um, strict boundaries, especially because I work from home. So um, there isn't really like I'm in the office and now I'm at home. I have just tried to find creative solutions to be able to manage my time well and to be able to focus solely on Thule when I'm supposed to be doing that and solely on my kids when I'm, when I'm supposed to be with them. And, um, you know, it's a day by day thing in 2020, especially with the lack of childcare, that was a challenge, but you know, you just fight through and you do what you have to do. And Tuli and my family are both very important to me. So I just honestly find a way to work. And like I said, it's a lot of very late nights. You know, you, it, it kind of goes back to that, that scrappiness you find a way. And I think a lot of people, we, we all have margin in our day. We don't, and I think people think they don't have margin, but you're hanging out on social media or you plopped in front of the, the television. And that, that is time that you can be productive and intentional with. I think you're totally right because I know back before I had my daughter, I thought I was so busy then. And I was like, I was doing a lot of things at the time and working a lot. I don't want to discount people who aren't parents, but then I had a baby and suddenly I had to find, and then my husband went on a long deployment. And so suddenly I had to find a way to do everything on my own and maintain the same level of productivity. And I just found a way. So I'm hoping in a couple of weeks when this new baby shows up, I'm able to do the same thing. Um, especially because your comment about, you know, getting on social media or sitting in front of the TV, like that can eat up a lot of time. And it's not necessarily, you know, I'm a big believer that everybody needs to take time for themselves. You know, you can't just run yourself ragged. I've done that before and it does not end well. We're not machine. Exactly. But, you know, for a lot of people, like sitting on Instagram is not going to make me feel better. And, um, sitting in front of the TV and watching Seinfeld reruns again is also not going to do anything. So if you're more intentional with your time, you can open up time to go do 
things that you really want to do are things that are actually going to help recharge you, like spending quality time with friends, or I'm getting a massage later this week, and that's going to be really nice. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, I think, another benefit of being very meticulous with the, with your time. Yes, most definitely. Okay, Megan, I know it's getting late there in Japan, but one last question for you. Sure. So the word relevate means to inspire or to restore good spirits. Close us out with how the work you're doing in being a social entrepreneur is thinking it's filling your cup up because you're living a life full on with purpose, but it's also doing a lot of good in the world. So uh, just, just share with us and maybe inspire other people who might, who might have a dream to, to pursue a career that makes a difference. Just close us out. That was very long and rambling. But. <laughs> That's all right. I'm the queen of long and rambling. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, it's really easy for me to feel a lot of motivation for my work and to stay up as late as I do working because there is such a greater impact behind it. And more so than that, I mean, everybody who buys from Thule is creating this huge impact that it, it, me alone couldn't be doing. And that that's an amazing thing to do. Um, as for anybody who's interested in doing something like this, I really think back to what we were saying, it's just a matter of starting. I mean, I really had no business starting to leave <laughs> and I had no training or anything. And um, I mean, we had a lot of mishaps along the way and you could look back at our first website and probably think it wasn't even the same company because it was so bad. I mean, I did it all myself. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and um, it was all very clumsy and haphazard, but there was a lot of passion and a lot of belief in what we were doing behind it. And so between that and working really hard to get better every day, like it's become what it is now. And I'm still honestly, like I look at different parts of my website. Sometimes I'm like, oh, we need to fix that. Or, you know, I feel like I don't want to say embarrassed, but like, I see all the places we can get better sure. and, um, we'll get there eventually. It's just a matter of starting and believing in what you're doing. And I think if, if people have that desire to do something good in the world, they should just go out and chase it. Absolutely. Well, I love what you're doing. I love your scrappiness, the fact that you're figuring it out along the way that you didn't quit, you persevered, and you are making an impact in the world. And I just find your story so uplifting and inspiring. And I thank you for coming on board at a very late hour and uh, 38 weeks pregnant. So, <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, same here. And if people would like to connect on your website or on social media, how's the best way to connect, Megan? Sure. Yeah. So we are most active on Instagram for sure. Our website is tuli.co and you spell tuli, T-U-L-I. Um, we're on Instagram at tuli style. And if anybody wants to connect with me personally, um, I'm on Instagram at Megan Kit. And I'm always happy to talk to people who are starting similar things. Awesome. And that is Thule 1L, not two. Yes, right? 1L. Okay, my dear. Well, thank you so much for your time and um, just keep up the great, great work. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and talking with you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Talk soon, Megan. Talk soon. I believe God puts dreams in all of our hearts to do good, to give back, to love one another, to make a positive impact in the world. Let's quit using our precious energy doing meaningless activities, like arguing with people on social media. 
and do something positive instead. Life is short and it is precious. What is the whisper of your heart? And where could you realign some of your time to devote to something bigger than yourself? Be bold and encouraged to just take that first step. For inspiration, visit the Thule website. That is Thule, T-U-L-I dot C-O. I'm Rena Olson, and this is Relevate.